But let's pray as we begin this morning. Father, we thank you again for your word. It is amazing to us, Lord, that this text was penned uh, thousands of years ago, in fact, but is still relevant, just amazingly relevant to 2023. Lord, your word is timeless. You have chosen to reveal yourself in a way that is timeless. And we thank you that you are with us, that you have been with us in the service. We pray that, Father, you would continue your transforming work in us by your Holy Spirit as we look into your powerful and potent word now. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. I remember being a kid in school in the final weeks of the month of June. Um, I knew that summer break, of course, was right around the corner when our family, normally we would head out to uh, the lake for a couple of weeks to enjoy some vacation time. And I looked forward to that so much in those final weeks of June. But I knew that in the meantime, I'd have to finish school assignments and write tests and clean out my locker, all that rather unpleasant stuff that you have to do as a school year draws to a close. But, but the prospect of the good times that were right around the corner gave energy to the present moment. I could write those tests knowing that very soon I'd be on summer break and wouldn't have to get up early anymore. Friends, I think when you have something to look forward to, maybe you can testify to this, it can really help your attitude and your energy in the present moment. Today's passage on our journey through the book of Daniel is a passage that encourages us to live heartily, to live joyfully in the present, knowing for a certainty that what we have to look forward to is nothing less than a blessed future with King Jesus. As we come back to the story of Daniel, Daniel, if we were, you were with us last week, you remember he has just praised God because God has revealed to Daniel the content and the meaning of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And so we pick things up at Daniel 2, verse 24. Therefore, Daniel went into Arioch, whom the king, King Nebuchadnezzar, had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. We remember Arioch had been on a mission to slay those Babylonian counselors who had failed to give the goods to Nebuchadnezzar concerning Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Daniel went and said thus to Arioch. Listen to what Daniel says. Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king and I will show the king the interpretation. So Daniel here acts as an advocate. Yes, he's acting on behalf of the Babylonian wise men. Don't go hurting them, Arioch. Put a pause on that and bring me in and let me come before Nebuchadnezzar and I'll give him the goods concerning his dream. Verse 25, then Arioch brought in Daniel before the king. So now the doors to the palace chambers open, brought Daniel in before the king in haste and thus said thus to him, 
Ariok says, I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. Now, of course, verse 24 just made it quite clear that Daniel had approached Ariok, right? And not the other way around, but here is Ariok before his king claiming credit for finding Daniel. And maybe Ariok, I think, is doing this as a way to, as courtiers do sometimes, to further ingratiate himself <laughs> to his king. Well, in verse 26, Nebuchadnezzar poses a question to Daniel. And Daniel's assigned Babylonian name, notice, is also given there, Belteshazzar. Nebuchadnezzar is still troubled by that recurrent dream that he'd been having, and he asks Daniel, maybe staring right at him, are you able to make known to me the dream that I had seen and its interpretation? And then what we notice in the text, friends, is that Daniel gives a three-verse rather lengthy speech before he discloses the dream. Notice this, verses 27 through 30 are Daniel's preamble, if we want to call it to that, his preamble that he gives before he gets to the actual disclosure of the dream. He starts by saying to Nebuchadnezzar, notice, the same essential thing that Nebuchadnezzar's Babylonian counselors had said to him in our passage last week. Daniel answered the king and said, No wise man, in, no wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. Remember, in verse 10 last week, the Babylonian entourage had said to their king, there is not a man on earth who can do what you have requested, king, showing you both the content and the meaning of your dream. And now Daniel says essentially the same thing in verse 27. Notice what he says. He says, what you're requesting, King Nebuchadnezzar, is humanly impossible. But, now when we see the word but, thank you, Sonia. <laughs> when we see the word but in the text of Scripture, it's often a word of blessing, right? Because we know something is about to turn and change. But, he says in, in verse 28, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Now, Daniel here is doing what Joseph had done when Joseph had stood before Pharaoh of Egypt. When Pharaoh had asked Joseph for the interpretation of his dream, what did Joseph say? Genesis 41, 16, Joseph said, It is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Joseph had borne witness, listen, to God's ability, to God's ability as he stood there before this Gentile Pharaoh of Egypt. He testifies to God's ability. And now Daniel likewise witnesses to God's power as he stands before this Gentile king, Nebuchadnezzar. In both cases, what's happening? The nations are being blessed 
by the offspring of Abraham as they are witnessing outside the land of Israel concerning their God. Daniel continues his preamble speech. He says to Nebuchadnezzar, your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed came thoughts of what would be after this. And he who reveals mysteries, that is God, made known to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be made known to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. Now, notice how Daniel very sincerely downplays the possibility that he was so special that God revealed the dream to him in particular. He downplays that. He says, it's not because I'm so wise that God revealed the dream to me. Rather, it's because God wanted you, Nebuchadnezzar, to know what the dream is all about. And then from verse 31 down through 35, Daniel reveals to Nebuchadnezzar, amazingly, astonishingly, he reveals to Nebuchadnezzar the content of Nebuchadnezzar's dream without Nebuchadnezzar telling him a thing about it. And a weird dream it was. You saw, O king, and behold, just picture it in your mind's eye, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and it, in its, its appearance was frightening. Now, the word that's used twice in this verse that translates into English as the word image is the Aramaic word salem, Salem, which is the same as the Hebrew word, Salem. The word is the same in both languages, and the Hebrew version of this word does not get used a whole lot in the Old Testament, in fact, less than 20 times. But significantly, it's used in Genesis chapter 1, where human beings are made in God's Salem, in God's image. But for the most part, when the Hebrew version of the word does get used in the Old Testament, it's used mostly to describe idols, to describe man-made images of a variety of different gods. And here in Daniel, we have the Aramaic appearance of the word Salem. Significantly, this is very significant, it gets used 16 times, high frequency, throughout Daniel 2 and Daniel 3. And Selem in these chapters describes statues. The statue that appears in Nebuchadnezzar's dream and the, the statue that Nebuchadnezzar will build in the next chapter, in chapter 3. But Selem, or the image here in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, is an image, we notice, very careful to note, very important to notice this, the image is in human form. It is shaped like a human, but it's made up of metals and terracotta clay. 
verse 32, the head of this image in your dream, Nebuchadnezzar, was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. Now, we make four observations very quickly as we read this description of the image. First of all, we notice that the image is indeed in the shape of a human being. It has a head, it has a chest, it has arms, a torso, legs, and feet. Second, we notice that the image descends from the most valuable material to the least valuable material. Golden head to a less valuable silver in the chest and the arms, then to a less valuable bronze. Bronze is an alloy of copper and tin. And then to iron, and then finally to inexpensive clay. So there is a regress in value, in splendor, from the start at the head to the end at the feet. Descending value. Third, we also notice that although the four medals of the statue are proceeding, as we just said, from most valuable to least valuable, they also in increase in strength. Soft gold, then to harder silver, to even harder bronze, and finally to the hardest of the four metals in the statue, to iron. Now fourth, probably you notice this, we can't help notice, but something here is, is quite flawed, right, in the construction of this image in Nebuchadnezzar's dream. One way to, to put it would be to say that this image in Nebuchadnezzar's dream is top-heavy, or another way, a better perhaps way to say it, is that this is a very unstable statue. An unstable statue. Its feet, we notice, are made up of a so-called mixture that does not cohere, does not blend. You can't mix iron with clay and expect to end up with something strong. Those two materials don't blend well together. So the statue has feet that are of, they're partly of iron and partly of clay. Chris Wright puts it this way, quote, the weakest part of the image was at the place where it most needed to be strongest, at its feet. All that gleaming glory above, but on a fragile crumbling base below. Close quote. Okay, so those are some initial observations. Let's hear what else Daniel has to say about Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Verse 34, he says to the king, as you looked, what? A stone was cut out. How? By no human hand. The fact that this stone was cut out by no human hand means that the stone, listen, comes from outside 
the realm of human ingenuity comes from outside the realm of human undertaking. The stone arrives from outside the human-shaped statue. And what happened? It struck the image. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. This rock, this stone, from outside the realm of human doing and thinking comes suddenly in the dream and it strikes and breaks the weak feet of this human-shaped image. Verse 35, then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold. Just imagine Daniel's relating this to Nebuchadnezzar. What's Nebuchadnezzar doing? He's probably sitting with his jaw open. The, bron the clay, the bronze, the silver, the gold, all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. So notice what happens, my friends. The whole statue comes tumbling down as the stone strikes it. The whole statue is smashed and broken beyond repair and then blown clear away as if it never existed while the stone that did the damage grows and takes the proportions of a great mountain that fills the entire earth. Now I ask you this question. Was there another moment earlier in biblical history when a large imposing man stood proud only to have a stone strike him and cause him to tumble down? David had slung a stone at imposing Goliath and had struck Goliath down. Could there be a parallel here in Daniel chapter 2? Could it be that the stone of Daniel chapter 2 is like that stone of David's? In other words, is the stone in Daniel 2 also a Davidic stone of some sort? Is this a stone that proceeds somehow out of the lineage of David? Well, let's go forward in our text. Verse 35 marks the end of Daniel relating the content of the dream to Nebuchadnezzar. Now comes the interpretation of the dream. Verses 36 through 38. Daniel says to Nebuchadnezzar, this was the dream. I love this part. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. <laughs> so he's very orderly in what he said. Here's what's going to happen, right? You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power and the might and the glory, and into whose hand he has given wherever they dwell the children of man 
the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all, you are the head of gold. Now there are four things for us to see quickly in these these verses. First of all, Daniel makes it crystal clear to Nebuchadnezzar that the God of heaven has given Nebuchadnezzar his kingdom and his power. In other words, whatever power and glory Nebuchadnezzar currently enjoyed, it was a derivative power and glory. Yes? It had been granted to him by the God of Israel, by the true God. As the prophet Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 27, verse 6, Nebuchadnezzar was simply Yahweh's servant. Jeremiah 27, 6, Nebuchadnezzar is Yahweh's servant. Whether Nebuchadnezzar knew it or not, he was acting in the service of Yahweh the God of Israel. All the pomp and all the splendor that Nebuchadnezzar had been enjoying had been given to him by a higher king. By God. God had given it to him for this season of God's sweeping plan for God's world. Second thing to notice in these verses, perhaps maybe some of us winced a little, when we heard Daniel describe Nebuchadnezzar as the king of kings. Of course, as Christians, we know that Jesus is the only one worthy of the title king of kings. So why does Daniel lay that title on Nebuchadnezzar here? Well, Daniel, in his Old Testament context, we have to understand in this particular context, is simply stating what the current historical reality was. Nebuchadnezzar ruled in that time over several smaller nation-states. He was king over those kings of those nation-states. There were several kings who had been forced to submit to Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon, and hence Daniel can call him the king of kings. Small k on both. And the prophet Ezekiel also calls Nebuchadnezzar king of kings. In Ezekiel 26, verse 7. It's just simply a historical reality. There's no flattery here. And third, very obviously here, we note that Nebuchadnezzar is the golden head (laughs) in the dream. Daniel says, you king are the head of gold. Fourth, in Daniel's description of Nebuchadnezzar, notice he says that to Nebuchadnezzar has been given what? The beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens, and that Nebuchadnezzar rules over all of them. Now this language reminds us of another place in the Old Testament, Genesis chapter 1, where Adam and Eve were given dominion over the birds of the heavens, and the livestock, and everything that moves on the earth. So it's almost like Nebuchadnezzar is some sort of New Adam. And just like Adam, Nebuchadnezzar, the golden head in the dream, is going to experience a fall. The golden head of the statue comes tumbling down 
with the rest of the statue. But the language also here, it reminds us again of the Goliath story. 1 Samuel 17. Goliath, as he's taunting David, trash-talking David, he claims that he controlled what the birds of the heavens and the beasts of the fields ate for dinner. As if Goliath ruled those creatures. He said to David in 1 Samuel 17, 44, Come to me and I will give your flesh, David, to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. But of course, Goliath was very wrong, wasn't he? Goliath would soon come tumbling down by means of David's stone, (laughs) just like the statue in Nebuchadnezzar's dream comes tumbling down by means of a stone. Well, then in verses uh, 39 through 43, Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar that the silver, the bronze, the iron parts of the statue represent kingdoms. They represent successive human kingdoms that will arise after Nebuchadnezzar's golden Babylonian kingdom. Daniel says, Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you. It's pretty flattering, eh? (laughs) Not superior, but inferior to you shall arise after you. And yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it will break and crush all these. And as you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom, but some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together just as iron does not mix with clay." I hope at this point Nebuchadnezzar hasn't had too much coffee because he'll be just wired at this point. Now, there have been, of course, attempts to identify the precise human kingdoms that are represented in the statue. I think probably the most common view is to see the second kingdom, the the silver kingdom, as the Medo-Persian Empire that came after Nebuchadnezzar. And then the third bronze kingdom is the Greek empire, which followed. And finally, the fourth iron kingdom represents the Roman empire. And while that may indeed be true, I think if we get too bogged down in trying to identify the kingdoms here, we will miss the basic point, which is this, that human kingdoms spring up And then they decline and fall one after another after another throughout history. Human kingdoms and empires fall. A few examples in history would be Babylon, the Roman Empire, ancient Maya, the Incan Empire, 
the British Empire, the Third Reich, the Soviet Union, and so on and so forth throughout human history with alarming signals that our own Western civilization might now be in its twilight. God's dose of reality to us, friends, in Nebuchadnezzar's dream is that human kingdoms and strong empires are only temporary. The United States is a temporary thing. Kingdoms don't ultimately last. God's dose of reality to us here in this dream is that human power and the hubris that comes with human power and empire building is a failed project in the end. And perhaps of particular interest to us here is how much space is devoted, almost in a sort of leisurely fashion here, slow motion fashion, in describing the feet and the toes of the fourth kingdom with its iron and clay. So for verse, notice, from verse 41 down through 43, the feet and the toes, the iron and the clay gets lots and lots of attention. The, the human kingdom here is both strong and it, it is also brittle, having been a composite of iron and clay. The, the kingdom is impressive with its iron strength, but it's characterized by disunity, with the iron trying to mix impossibly with the clay. And it's at this very point, this very weakness where the stone strikes and the entire notice, the entire edifice of human kingdoms comes crashing down. The statue is one statue, notice. Though it has these different metals and these different parts, it is one statue. It is a single statue of human history. A single statue representing enormous amounts of time with kingdoms rising and falling, kingdoms springing up, declining, being succeeded one after another. One statue that spans across time that is smashed and pulverized at once by one stone. Verses 44 and 45 And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain and its interpretation sure. Now notice as verse 44 begins, Daniel says that in the days of those kings, 
Daniel will, or God will set up his kingdom. So in other words, over that entire long period of human history, even as successive kingdoms of gold, silver, bronze, iron are rising and falling, God sets up or he establishes his kingdom. And unlike all human kingdoms, friends, God's kingdom is an indestructible kingdom. It is an everlasting kingdom. It is the final kingdom, and it is an all-powerful kingdom. This kingdom comes from outside of human engineering, human planning, human ingenuity, and the king of the kingdom, the true king of kings, is Jesus, the Son of God. Jesus took on human flesh, and in the hour of his birth, even as Rome was still ruling the land, the angel Gabriel announced that there would be no end to the kingdom of Jesus. Hebrews 12.28 says that his kingdom is a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And when Jesus began his earthly ministry, he announced that the kingdom of God had indeed come near. As he cast out demons as the divine warrior come in human flesh, he said that if it was by the Spirit of God that he cast out demons, then the kingdom of God had come near. The indestructible, everlasting kingdom of God, the kingdom of the stone in Daniel 2, has come near in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the Davidic stone that comes, breaking to pieces and crushing. Jesus said in Luke 20, verse 18, to those who were rejecting him, he said, everyone falls, or sorry, everyone who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. What's Jesus alluding to there? He's alluding to Daniel chapter 2. He is the stone, friends, that comes breaking and crushing human sin and arrogance. He is 1 Peter 2 verse 4's living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. This stone, this king and his kingdom, comes from outside our earthly realm. Jesus made that fact very plain to Pilate when he said to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. It comes from outside, like the stone in Daniel 2. Jesus established his kingdom on earth, though yes, he did, just as the stone that toppled Nebuchadnezzar's statue grew into a great mountain that filled the whole earth. So this kingdom of Jesus Christ begins small, like a mustard seed, but grows to such proportions that it fills the earth. Let every tongue and tribe, responsive to his call, to him all majesty ascribe and crown him Lord of all. To him all majesty ascribe and crown him Lord of all. My friends, our needed dose of reality this morning, even as we might be frightened 
by international developments, even as we might be disturbed by the rumblings and the rantings of world leaders, is that Revelation 11.15 is a sure and certain thing. You can bank on it. The kingdom of this world will become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. Nebuchadnezzar has been listening intently without interrupting Daniel from verse 27 all the way down through verse 45. It's a long time. Daniel's now finished with his mind-blowing revelation that God had given him. And now Nebuchadnezzar reacts. Our last verses this morning, verses 46 through 49. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. So the reality here is Nebuchadnezzar apparently has no material idol or image that is dedicated to Yahweh of Israel. And so Nebuchadnezzar decides to do the next best thing, to bow before Yahweh's mouthpiece, Daniel. He says to Daniel in verse 47, Truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries. For you have been able to reveal this mystery. And then in verse 48, Nebuchadnezzar showers Daniel with a new computer and a new car, gifts and honors. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel made a request of the king. It's a good time to do it. Nebuchadnezzar's happy. And he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained at the king's court. Now we have to wonder a little bit about Nebuchadnezzar here. Daniel has just told him, remember, that ultimately the golden head that is his kingship and his kingdom, along with three other succeeding kingdoms, would be smashed by a rock. And yet here's Nebuchadnezzar bowing before Daniel, showering, showering him with gifts. We wonder if the bowing before Daniel, the incense that is offered, the giving of gifts, if this is coming not so much from a place in Nebuchadnezzar's heart where he is awed by God, but rather because Nebuchadnezzar, having heard the dream and its interpretation, he simply realizes from this that, oh, I guess maybe I'm not in, in immediate danger, right? And we also know that Nebuchadnezzar really didn't heed the message of this dream because in the very next part of the story, what's he going to do? Set up an image of gold. An image that is gold from its head right down to its feet. No silver, no bronze, no iron or clay in Nebuchadnezzar's statue, just gold all the way down, as if to say in defiance of the dream that his golden kingdom would last forever. I think the most we can say about Nebuchadnezzar here in Daniel 2 is that he's impressed 
by Israel's God, but by no means is he converted to Israel's God. And as for Daniel, we see in these final verses that he gets a promotion in the Babylonian kingdom, and he successfully requests that his three friends also get a promotion, so that all four of them now are hard at work, notice. Hard at work, friends, in the very kingdom that had removed them from Judah. All four of them are hard at work in the kingdom that they now know from the dream is destined, like all other human kingdoms, to be smashed by the rock. They're hard at work in that kingdom. All four of them are hard at work for a king, for the head of gold, who will inevitably come tumbling down with the rest of the statue. What was their alternative? Well, having the revelation of the dream, they might simply have said, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, Daniel, they get together and they say, well, we know now that Babylon will fall by the stone, so let's escape to the countryside and set up a commune and leave Babylonian society and just simply wait for the stone to come. But they didn't do that. Instead, they got to work for the golden head, for Nebuchadnezzar and his Babylonian kingdom. Why? Because they knew that ultimately they were working and living in what Chris Wright calls the story of the rock. The eternal kingdom of God that would ultimately replace all earthly kingdoms and that made all the difference. My friend, how about you? Do you know that even as you rub shoulders and carry out your business amongst the gold, silver, bronze, iron empires, kingdoms of this world, that actually you are living in the story of the rock? As a kid at school in the month of June, I could write the tests and finish the assignments knowing that summer break was right around the corner. As a believer in Jesus Christ, I can work in the now within the imperfect, failing, fading human kingdom, knowing that the trials that I experience, the injustices that I see, the pain of the present will all be gone one day. Knowing that. Revelation 11.15 will be the reality. The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of the Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. As Brian Chappelle says, our present is bearable because Christ's future glory is guaranteed.